Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 78, The Olympic Stage is Set. The Winter Games were officially closed on February 16th, and all had went well. The Nazi party was bolstered by their success and by the veil they had successfully pulled over everyone. And to glance a bit into the future, as the Summer Games would go off equally well, the German state had gained much goodwill, during which time Nazi Germany continued to rearm, mostly out in the open. But there was an event in between the two groups of games that reminded all what Hitler was about, the expansion of his German state. On March 7th, German troops marched into the Rhineland of Western Germany against the Versailles Treaty and the Locarno Pact. Once again, German soldiers were along the borders of Belgium, Luxembourg, and France. As most of the world was still entrenched in an anti-militaristic mood, they justified their inaction by stating that, after all, the Germans were really just placing troops in their own backyard. No country had been invaded, so what was the harm? But for a few days, the world had wondered what Hitler was capable of. And yet the fright was easily and quickly replaced by the excitement of the coming summer games. This was helped along by the simple fact that everyone now seemed beyond the point of using the games to embarrass Berlin. That's how it seemed. The athletes wanted to go. The various countries' Olympic committees, many of them former athletes themselves, wanted to go. So the games would go on. If there was to be any negativity to come, it would have to be in the form of a Nazi screw-up, which, it will be shown, they were working in overdrive to avoid. Still, the Rhineland occupation was a shock to the world, as, at this time, this was the biggest promise Hitler had broken so far. So, once again, various committees held conferences and voted as to whether their athletes should go to Berlin. But as the momentum was in full swing for it, the votes all went as Germany wanted them to. It's interesting to note that though the British Olympic Committee voted to go, after all, they had already participated in the Winter Games, there was much talk in the form of letters from respected leaders of academia and industry sent to the Foreign Office of Standing Up to Berlin. Professors and professionals who had until recently, lived or worked in Germany's, wrote letters saying that nothing could shake the relatively new Nazi regime like a boycott of all the major countries. Besides which, it would see Germany lose some 10 million marks worth in foreign currency. Between the lost prestige and funds, Berlin would be shaken to its core. Of course, the counter-argument went, well, that's one of the beauties of having a totalitarian state. The state may shake, but the leader would not fall. Not over something like this. Still, the letters came to the Foreign Office. Moreover, many mentioned the current accepted belief that, for the last three years, London had been lenient towards the Nazi state. How many times had Hitler bluffed or threatened, and what had been Downing Street's response? No, now is the time to stand up to Hitler and educate the British people of what the Olympics were truly about, the glorification of the Nazi state. 
And though the cabinet members and the foreign office acknowledged receiving such letters, that was the proper thing to do. Dear Gerald, I have received your letter last Thursday. Specific action was not taken in regards to the coming games. Of course, London was agitated by Hitler and his control over this powerful, populous country. And that anxiety only increased as the British embassy in Berlin had parts of Mein Kampf translated and sent out to other foreign governments and the League of Nations. But the icing on the cake of the warnings was when Professor E. L. Woodward was asked to create a report on the mentality of Hitler and his state. His results are obvious with hindsight. Berlin was not to be trusted. Any agreement with them was a waste of time. Quote, if agreements are worthless, why make them? We know that about 300 people a month are still done in by the Nazi police. But we shall hurrah all right at the Olympic Games. Unquote. This report was passed around London, but the end result was, in 1936, Hitler was not, in the later words of FDR regarding Stalin, get addable. The all-important year of 1936 got underway by the moving of the Olympic Bell to Berlin. As it was only moving 12 miles an hour, marching bands preceded it, as did speeches by local dignitaries. But finally, the nine-and-a-half-ton bell was hoisted into place on Mayfield at 7 a.m. on May 11th. Then came the French, or rather the possible maybe-not-coming of the French. Of all the countries, France felt the potential daggers coming from Germany most keenly, given their history. The reoccupation of the Rhineland certainly didn't help calm any French fears. But as Hitler had and would go on to confound so many leaders, the French government wasn't sure which way to step. Do they not send anyone, which would anger the Germans, thereby negating any possible understanding? Or do they try to gather adherents to join them in not going? If they absolved from participation alone, they would come across as pouting adolescents. In the end, the French came but they didn't like it. But then the true colors of the Nazi attitude about sport and race came forward from an unlikely source, something beyond their control. On June 19th, there was a non-title boxing match between the German Max Schmeling and African-American heavyweight contender Joe Lewis. Schmeling, the former heavyweight champion, not only stayed on his feet longer than many thought possible, but knocked out Lewis who would one day be called the Brown Bomber and hold the heavyweight championship longer than anyone else, in the 12th round. The Nazi party, in the form of propaganda minister Dr. Joseph Goebbels, swung into action, stunned as much as anyone else by this revelation. When Schmeling returned to Germany aboard the Zeppelin Hindenburg, he found not only his wife waiting for him, but a famous German movie star, his mother, and a Nazi band. The party also organized an impromptu parade, which ended up at the office of the city's mayor for more photographs. Then he was whisked away to have tea with Hitler. Still, such a victory for the white race could not go unheralded, according to the SS. Their statement was simple 
and to the point. Quote, Here, black and white confronted each other. But it was not only Joe Lewis that was defeated. The sporting spirit of the great masses felt that our comrade saved the reputation of the white race. He, Schmeling, with his hard fists, has won the respect of the world for the German race, from which we have concluded that we have only ourselves to rely upon. Thus the Nazis showed their true faces and their belief system. But things were about to turn worse for Berlin. One day after the boxing match on June 20th, Paris announced it would not officially take part in the games, even if certain French athletes participated. But it was about to get worse. On June 23rd, again just days after the great German victory over the black American, Barcelona proclaimed that it was organizing their own sporting events. And furthermore, some 20 countries had already stated they would be sending participants. Although this series of games would only siphon off some 10,000 viewers, still the following countries promised to send representatives. The United States, Canada, Palestine, Poland, Norway, Denmark, Holland, Sweden, and various British athletes, and Russia, which had not been invited to the games in Berlin. Upon hearing of this, the normally calm, urbane Dr. Goebbels did a fair imitation of a Hitler tirade. Still, the show would go on, and that show in Berlin would dominate. As the opening ceremonies came closer, various decrees were issued forth from Berlin. First, every German would avail himself or herself to help clean up the cities and the countryside villages. At least some passengers stopped by on their way to the capital. All fences were to be whitewashed, signs mended. Speaking of signs, all of those concerning Jews were taken down. What's more, as there were sure to be Jewish visitors, they were to be treated with dignity and respect, as if they were Aryans themselves. Of course, the Nazi authorities made it clear that, quote, the fundamental attitude of the German people towards Judaism remains unchanged, unquote. Also, on the trams, the men were to give up their seats to any female passengers, even if the woman looks like a Jewess. But most of this was a waste of time, as the vast majority of Germans outside the city were polite and hospitable. They desired to meet foreigners. It was their overseers that were beyond common sense. So far, Nazi Germany's charm offensive on the visiting general public was a success. As for the personages of note coming to Berlin, they were to be targeted like a future V2 rocket. One such was the American flyer Charles Lindbergh, the first person to fly from New York to Paris nonstop. He and his wife, Anne Morrow, were to have the red carpet rolled out for them, which, in short order, bowled them over. General Milch, commander of the Luftwaffe, escorted husband and wife around the air ministry, then took them to the capital's airport. Lindbergh was allowed to fly in and then pilot a new passenger aircraft, which may have been a mistake, as the American, once behind the wheel, decided to really test the aircraft, causing many of the passengers to almost become sick. The shaken Germans, when they exited the plane, smiled 
as best they could. This, as well as visits to aircraft factories, had the desired effect. Lindbergh went home after the games and spoke highly of Germany's air power. What's more, and this was directly for American consumption, Berlin was delighted with a reaction to Lindbergh's statement that went, He admits they, the Germans, are a great menace, but denies they are a great menace to us. However, Hitler was about to become a great menace to the national government in Spain. On July 25th, just days before the games were to begin, and in the middle of an opera, no less, representatives from a not well-known Spanish general, Francisco Franco, were brought to Hitler's presence. The men told the German leader that a revolt had just started against the national government, and Franco was hoping Germany, that is, Hitler, would help them by providing airplanes to transport troops from Morocco to Spain. As for Hitler, he saw the national government as being propped up by Stalin and the communists, so was only too happy to help. The next day, German aircraft were on their way, as was Franco, to the top of the Spanish hierarchy. It's not known if Hitler thought this through, but his assistance to Franco brought him another victory, besides helping against the Red Menace in Europe. The Spanish games were closed down even before they started, as gunfire could be heard throughout Catalonia, the city chosen to start the games. Now, Hitler's games had no direct competition. The torch run from Olympia to Berlin began on July 20th. The distance was 3,075 kilometers, exactly, and a runner would travel one kilometer before handing it off to the next runner. At dawn, horns blasted out into the morning air, welcoming the important day. The fire was lit at noon, and soon after some speeches by representatives of Greece and Germany, the first runner departed. Rarely did any runner from Greece to Berlin run alone. Such was the people's enthusiasm and desire to be a part of something surely to go down in the history books. A common misconception was that the run started on Mount Olympus, but ancient Olympia is located in the Peloponnese, near the home of the ancient Spartans to the south. Yet as days went by, the flame made its way north, finally through Greece, then to Bulgaria, then Yugoslavia, where the flame went out. Actually, the flame started to flicker. Obviously, the Krupp design and made torch was imperfect. The runner was thrown into a car with his fading light, but before they could reach the next runner, the flame disappeared. When they reached the next runner, a fresh flame was secretly started. Yet none of this was wisely reported to Berlin or the wider world. But that was not the drama of the torch run that most people know. As the flame neared Vienna, those of a pro-Nazi persuasion were ready to make themselves heard by their countrymen and the world. The flame was to arrive in Vienna at the Homburg, the center of the government buildings, at exactly 7.30 p.m. But before then, many ragged-looking men and women began to gather, indeed outnumbering the locals who recognized each other, but not these obviously downtrodden souls. 
Then these vagabonds started singing the forbidden horse vessel song, named after a Nazi martyr. Raise high the flags, close up the ranks. The S.A. marches with stealthy, steady tread. Comrades shot by the Red Front and reaction are marching with us in spirit, in our ranks. This was replaced by the German national anthem, Deutschland über alles, and screams of Hau Hitler. The police, whether because they sympathized or were in shock, did little to disrupt the disruptors. When it came time for the very speeches to be made, the speaker was met with either overwhelming screams or overwhelming silence. When the runners departed, again surrounded by other Austrian athletes, the people booed the non-pro-Nazi runners and cheered those in line with Berlin. Austria and Berlin had just been put on notice, whether they realized it or not. Through all this drama and more besides, the flame would reach the stadium exactly on time. This was a German undertaking, after all. For those Germans who left years ago when the Nazis first came to power, they were shocked, in good and bad ways, at the altering of the great city. Nazi banners 45 feet high hung down between buildings. The path that led to the Olympic Village looked like a long-ago king's main camp near a battlefield. There could be no doubt of who controlled the capital city of Germany and their confidence, if not arrogance. Equally shocking was the presence of foreign newspapers that had been banned as far back as 1933, Hitler's first year in power. Also, jazz music, declared degenerate by the Nazis, could be heard coming out of the various clubs. The same could be said for the newly arrived prostitutes, recently shipped in from many German locales. Censorship? What censorship, mein Herr? As the games approached, just over one million people arrived in Berlin, though most were Germans themselves, from other parts of the country. Still, at this moment, Berlin was gay. Everyone in it was gay. Parties were everywhere, as were smiles and entertainments of all kind. Those Germans who had not been to the capital for some time must have truly wondered about all the horrible rumors they had heard of. And during this growing, ever louder partying, arrived the stars themselves, the athletes from around the globe, the 52 national teams. The United States had the most members, with 384, with Germany in second, with 300 athletes. But all told, there were now some 4,000 athletes ready and waiting to entertain the 1.2 million sports fans around them. However, even with all this circus-like atmosphere, leave it to the Americans to bring real controversy with them. During the journey over, on the ocean liner Manhattan, swimmer Eleanor Holm Jarrett, who had previously won the gold for the 100-meter backstroke at Los Angeles, got herself suspended from the team just as they arrived in Hamburg. It was no secret that Jarrett, who was expected to take the gold again, and Avery Brundage, president of the American Olympic Committee, did not like each other. So, when Brundage had her placed in a third-class cabin, a very big deal, I have found out, she retaliated by getting rip-roaring drunk 
in a first-class bar, a place she wasn't supposed to be, given the norms of the day. Led back to her cabin, think of Leonardo DiCaprio and how far away he was from Kate Winslet in Titanic, Jarrett was told she was being given a pass this time, but she should watch herself from now on, which is exactly what you do not say to an American, a famous one, an accomplished one, with a gold medal already at home. That night, Jarrett went back to the first-class section and proceeded to down enough alcohol to give her the courage and fortitude to cuss out the team's chaperone. Then she passed out. The U.S. committee felt that they had no choice but to oust her and send her back to the United States. Off the team she was, but she wasn't about to leave, so took an offered job as a reporter by the International News Service. It didn't hurt that she had a beautiful face and the body of a goddess. See this episode's cover photo. But she did keenly miss competing and her teammates. For the rest of the American team, they realized the U.S. was about to bring home one less gold medal. Along with the now 4,000 athletes in Berlin, there were almost 700 foreign sports reporters. Dr. Goebbels was used to holding sway over the entire country's news agencies, but there was nothing he could do about this. Still, the German people, as had the various Nazi officials, had been warned. Be on your best behavior, and smile, smile, smile. As for the rest, the actual games, they would have to take care of themselves. And yet, there was tension in the air, or rather the notion that something wasn't right, which just hung there, barely beyond the comprehension of those enjoying themselves in Berlin. Of course, with hindsight, we can see more clearly. First, at the end of July, just before the Games were to start, the International Olympic Committee voted to remove Commodore Lee Jackney, Assistant Secretary to the United States Navy from 1929 to 33, for his continuing opposition of sending U.S. athletes to Berlin, thereby showing any support for the Nazi Party. The Nazis appreciated this gesture. Secondly, on July 31st, those still loyal to the Austrian government gathered to protest those pro-Nazi elements that made a nuisance of themselves when the Olympic torch came through Vienna. Clearly, a reckoning of some kind was building in their neighbor state. But lastly, the Nazis had gotten what they wanted. The Olympic Games were being held in Berlin. There had been little trouble so far, and if all proceeded along these lines, the Games would be a huge success. The party in power in Germany would perhaps be viewed less hostile. The result being, the international waters would be that much more muddied, giving Hitler even more room to maneuver in his quest for territory. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 79, Let the Games Begin. The end of July may have been bright, hot even, but before the next dawn, the clouds rolled in, bringing mists of rain to the August 1st morning. Not that that mattered to practically anybody 
as thousands camped out that night, not wanting to miss any of the spectacle that was about to unfold. Those that were sleeping under the stars, or clouds rather, were awakened by the crash of military music being played by various marching bands, the most effective alarm clock known to humankind. At exactly 8 a.m., the Berlin Guards Regiment Band approached the Adlon Hotel to salute the International Olympic Committee in general and Court Bellier Latour in particular, its president. He would be giving many speeches this day. Unfortunately, they would all be long, way too long, and almost single-handedly ruining everyone's expectations for the day. Then the band turned and marched down the Uter den Linden. Linden is basewood in English, lime to the British. The east-west thoroughfare, named after the rows of linden trees, first planted more than three and a half centuries ago. Their destination was the Lestgatten, at the eastern end, where the approaching Olympic flame was to be cheered by the throngs of people. For those who couldn't make it this far into Berlin, schoolchildren, boys and girls, were at various sports fields, offering demonstrations of gymnastics and dancing to entertain the crowds. There the celebrations lasted from 8 to 10 a.m., at 10 o'clock, there were to be two religious services, one at the Berlin Cathedral, the other at the Hedwig Cathedral. Immediately after was the ceremony at the War Memorial. Representatives of the Army, Navy, and Air Force, followed by foreign students and youths, led by Count Balier Latour and Dr. Lewald, solemnly laid a wreath before the memorial of those who had died during the Great War. It represented a sign of respect by those about to participate in and observe the coming games. At the old museum, finished in 1830, the Reich youth leader, Baldur von Schirach, in between two massive columns, declared, We, the youth of Germany, we, the youth of Adolf Hitler, greet you, the youth of the world. Then Goebbels stepped forward to speak. But at exactly 12.58, he brought his words to a close with the statement, Holy flame, burn, burn, and never go out. As he had raised his arms at the moment, the crowd went silent, for they knew what was coming, the Olympic flame. Far away from Goebbels, a tide of whispers started, then grew. Then the runner carrying the flame could be seen. The crowd on that end exploded into cheers. As the flame passed by more of the bystanders, they too broke into cheers. Yet those now behind the runner did not stop cheering. Soon no one could hear anything but the screams of exaltation. Just behind the runner were hundreds, if not thousands, of others joining. The police very quickly gave away to the ever-growing wave of humanity. By then, some 500,000 people were aligned along the 1.5-kilometer-long and 60-meter-wide Unter den Linden. Soon after, Hitler was receiving the members of the IOC, International Olympic Committee. There, the Count launched into his first too-long speech, but ended on a high note, as far as the Germans were concerned by declaring that the Greek government had decided to allow the Germans to lead a renewal of the excavation at the Olympia site. 
By now, the 170 buses, set aside specifically for this, began taking the 4,000 athletes from the Olympic Village to the stadium, where the easily over 100,000 fans waited. Entertaining them, and hopefully keeping them somewhat calm, was the Berlin Philharmonic and National Orchestra, playing Wagner's Die Meistersinger. If that weren't enough, the expected people could simply look up and see the 900-foot-long and 160-foot-wide Zeppelin Hindenburg. It was easy to spot, even with the clouds, as it had massive swastika emblems, while trailing behind it was an enormous Olympic flag. If its size wasn't enough to impress, then its recent accomplishment surely would. Just a month ago, the Hindenburg had made the journey from Lakehurst, New Jersey, to Frankfurt, Germany, along with 50 passengers, a lounge, and a grand piano, in just 49 hours, easily destroying the time of the fastest ocean liner. Indeed, this flying hotel seemed to be the future of transportation, and the Germans, proudly so, believed they were in the driving seat of it. Putting aside the music and the flying death trap above, the stadium crowd, foreign and local, waited with bated breath for the Olympic flame and a chance to see Der Führer. Most Germans, the country had a population of about 80 million, had never seen their leader in the flesh before, and so wanted to see the man who had saved their country from the fiscal abyss and restored their national pride. And Hitler was coming. At exactly three o'clock, his black Mercedes-Benz exited the Chancellery, traveled the Wilhelmstrasse to the Unter der Linden. At the same time, the flame left its present location to follow in der Führer's wake. At 3.58, Hitler's black car arrived beside the bell tower at the edge of the Mayfield. Awaiting his arrival, besides the 100,000-plus spectators, was an honor guard, the IOC, and all 52 national teams. The trumpets sounded, calling the world to his presence, as he passed through the athletes to enter the stadium proper. If the crowd did not appreciate his wearing a military uniform, that didn't stop them from making a noise that seemed to shake the entire arena. The Nazi brass had asked their leader to wear civilian clothes, but Hitler, knowing he did not cut a dashing figure in a suit, wisely chose to wear a uniform and a peaked cap. Standing out, which was the point next to him, was Goebbels, wearing a white jacket. But only someone wanting to die very quickly would have mistaken him for a waiter. But he did look like one. Walking across the arena, Hitler was stopped by a beautiful five-year-old girl who offered him flowers. Then the host of the games made his way, with a huge entourage in tow, to his box. With him, looking back at the massive crowd, were Hess, Goebbels, Blomberg, Frick, and the Crown Prince Umberto of Italy. Hitler then raised his arms in greeting, which was the signal for the Deutschland über alles and the Hoist Vessel song to be played. Those who attended the 1936 Olympics heard these two anthems ad nauseum. Then, as the flags of the various countries were raised, the Olympic bell began to ring out, softly at first, but then louder and louder, 
Its inscribed message was clear. I call the youth of the world. The teams started walking by Hitler's box, greeting the host of the games. First came the Egyptians, because in German, their country started with an A. The rest came in alphabetical order, with the host team coming in last. But showing that no state can completely control its citizens, one of the longest and loudest cheers came as it was the turn of the French team to go by. Clearly the spectators, mostly German, desired to bury the past and start anew with their neighbor nation. One can only imagine how Hitler felt about this, but fortunately we do not have to guess. Standing next to the German leader was Albert Speer, who recorded in his diary, as the cheers went on and on, he, Hitler, was more disturbed than pleased. When it was time for the athletes of Great Britain, they had decided not to give the Olympic salute, as it was too close to the Nazi gesture. Instead, they gave their future enemy a respectable eyes right. This earned them a tepid applause. The Americans could have told them that this was not the way to go, as they had already tried that during the Winter Games. This time, the U.S. team, when they came, sought an improvement on their last attempt, so offered Hitler a well-organized taking off of their straw hats and placing them on their chest. They got a slightly louder cheer than the British. But it wasn't until the host team walked by that the noise level matched what the French had received. And now it's time for some high, or rather low, comedy. Dr. Lewald, the German member of the IOC, stepped forward to address the crowd. He evidently had decided to match the count in terms of a boring monologue. Reporting for the British was Tommy Woodruff, who knew as much German as myself. As the speech went on and on, Tommy got bored. He started commenting on various things within his view. First, there was the disappointing weather. Okay. Then the stadium. Thanks for the impressive details. Then the Zeppelin. Okay, again, thanks. Then he mentioned how green the grass was. Obviously, bored out of his mind, and probably beginning to bore his listeners, he exclaimed something along the lines of, I have no idea what this chap is saying, but I can't take much more of it. It was not the BBC's proudest moment. But during Woodruff's introspection on how green the grass was, he failed to notice that Lewald had stopped talking and was, in fact, replaced by Hitler. Before the BBC man could get his senses together, Hitler had quickly walked up to the mic and said, I declare the games in Berlin to celebrate the 11th Olympiad of the modern era as open and stepped back, waiting for the awkward cheers to follow, which they did, but only after everyone realized the man who could speak for hours was done in under ten seconds. Artillery then sounded a salute, and 20,000 pigeons were released, hopefully not in the path of the artillery, and then Germany's recently written Olympic hymn was started up. And just as the hymn died away, this had all been planned out. The final torchbearer, the 3,075th runner, entered the eastern gate. Of course, the runner, a Berliner named Schilgen, was blonde hair and had perfect features. 
The runner reached his destination, and the Olympic flame was lit. The crowd seemed to be saving their loudest hurrahs for this moment. An olive branch from Olympia was then handed to Hitler, whereupon the German gold medalist weightlifter of 1932, Rudolf Ismayer, spoke the Olympic oath for all the athletes present. We swear that we will take part in the Olympic Games in loyal competition, respecting the regulations which govern them, and desirous of participating in the true spirit of sportsmanship for the honor of our country and the glory of sport. Next, the athletes all marched past Hitler's box again, this time leaving the stadium. Hitler himself left at 6 p.m. to host various other parties. But many stayed behind to watch the festival of the Olympic youth, thousands strong who were singing and dancing for the people, according to Tommy Woodruff, on green grass. On the morrow, the games would begin. The weather was still overcast for the first day of the games, and it was cold. Not that it mattered to the 100,000-plus squeezed into the stadium. At 10.30 a.m., the first of the track events got underway. The first event was the 100-meter race. This was seen as the most important event, and many in the crowd hoped that their local champion, Bachmeier, would take the gold. But, it must be said, many were also dying to see the 22-year-old black student from Ohio University, Jesse Owens. Just one year ago, Owens had broken three track records, and that was after hurting his back the week before. What athletic wonders would he, with his already four world records in total, perform today? Ignoring the fact that the Nazi party thought of blacks as Untermenschen, subhuman, thousands of German boys idolized James Cleveland Owens. See the novel The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak as a great example of a true athlete and champion. Alas, many, if not most, of those young German boys had to experience their idol through the radio, but as that was the dominant media of the day, the pre-adolescents did not mind. For those who have not seen films of Owens, or as the locals would soon shout out after each race he was in, Oh, Vens! Oh, Vens! He was a scuttler. Someone who, when they ran, did not bring his knees up as high as most runners. Still, as he was perfectly proportioned, this did not stop him from running at amazing speeds. Owens had his own trainer, something that would confound the British, who truly sent amateurs, people who trained on their own, on their own dime, and on their own time. But regardless, Jesse Owens' style never changed or improved, according to some. Still, it was Owens who, when he was just 19 years old, set a new world's record for the 100-yard run at 9.4 seconds. And this record stood for 21 years. However, the crowd would have to wait for the 12th heat, the series of races that would show who would go on to the quarter, semi, and then final race to determine the winner before seeing Owens run. The German Bachmeier came in at a respectable 10.7 seconds, the American Wyckoff in 10.6 seconds, and the Dutchman Osdendarp in 10.5 seconds. Then the 12th heat came. 
Owens and the other racers were allowed to dig small holes to get a good start. Blocks were not used yet, and each man was given a silver trowel and allowed to keep them as souvenirs. Hare Miller, the starter, raised his three eighty pistol, paused, and then said, Auf de Platz, Fertig, bang, and the gun went off. The runners sprang up and tore down their lanes. Yet, it wasn't a race. Not really. It wasn't even close. Owens pulled ahead and won. The closest man was yards behind him as he broke the tape. The crowd looked at the board showing the times. Owens had tied the world's record with a time of 10.3 seconds. The people went wild. The next series of heats were to start at 3 p.m., this time, Owens was in the second heat. Again, Herr Miller readied the runners and then fired his pistol. This time, Owens won overall with a 10.2 second time, which should have been a new world's record. But as there had been a following wind, he was considered as tying his 10.3 time. The other black American, Metcalf, and the German Bockmeyer were right behind him, with their respectable 10.5 times. But as far as the viewing crowd went, Owens was their man. This was the true goal of sport, to take an athlete into your heart and cheer him or her on, regardless of nationality. It didn't hurt that Jesse seemed to be a relaxed, regular kind of guy who just happened to be able to run like the wind. Then it was time for the unexpected German Cinderella story. On the field came the 14 female competitors of the javelin throw. The expected winner was the Austrian champion Hermine Bauma, who indeed had already beaten the world's record at an earlier event. When it was Germany's Tilly Fleischer's turn, her nerves got the better of her, and her javelin landed only 38.6 meters away. After the first round, the Pole Marina Konsolinska was in the lead. But during the second round, Tilly scored a distance of 44.69 meters, a new world's record. Clearly, she had settled her nerves. Now the German led. But would it be enough to set her up to win outright? The crowd wanted her to know they believed in her by shouting, Tilly! Tilly! The third and final round had another German, Luis Kruger, throw at 44.69 to pass the pole to take second place behind Tilly. Then the Austrian Bauma threw and seemed poised to win overall. But then Tilly heaved her javelin for the last time and registered a 45.18 meters, not only breaking the world's record for a second time, but it was enough to take home the gold. Germany had its first gold medaler. Hitler had missed this amazing performance, but was back in time for the men's shot put. In all honesty, he had been well informed of when German athletes would probably do well, so strove to be in attendance at the time. Germany had never won a gold medal in this event, so hopes were running high. But what really inspired the two German shot putters was a rumor that the American Jack Torrance, who had set a world's record just two years ago, was off his game. But the Germans found themselves faced with a new threat, the Finn Barlund. In fact, he set a new record to get to the finals. His distance was 16.03 meters. 
Torrance, the rumors were true, was not performing to expectations. Ironically, the two German athletes, Hans Wilk and Gerhard Stock, were on the bill as being on the American team due to a misprint, but they still strove mightily to perform well under Der Führer's gaze. The thin Barland was in the lead, but the German Wolk was right behind him. When it came his turn to throw again, again probably aware that Hitler was back in his box, the young man exerted himself and achieved a 16.20, not only passing Barlin, but setting a new record. The mostly German crowd exploded. The announcer could not be heard for several minutes, but the crowd hushed as the Finn had one more throw to go. As raucous as the stadium had been just a minute ago, it was now completely silent. The Finn stepped up and seemed to give it his all, the shot landing past the 16-meter mark. But it wasn't enough. Wolk took the gold, the Finn the silver, and the other German, Stock, took the bronze. It seemed then as if the German populace was trying to shake the stadium to the ground with their victorious roars. Hitler was beside himself with pride. He bade the two German medalists to his box and Tilly Flesher to shake their hands. Count Belier-Latour rushed to Hitler's side, probably risking his life at the moment, to tell the host that he should congratulate all the winners or none. That was fair. That was the Olympic way. Hitler knew he would not be there all the time, so announced he would not bring anyone else to his box. When it was time for the 10,000-meter race, everyone expected the Finns to take the gold. The flying Finn, Pavo Nurmi, himself setting 22 world records, was with the Finnish runners as a coach. The younger men were inspired by his presence and did not want to let him down. Yet, when the race started, the pace was much faster than anyone expected, and it was being led by the Japanese runner, Murakoso. Round and round, Murakuso led the pack, the Finns settling in as a group behind the leader. Almost halfway through the race, the runners spread out. Now there were only five possible winners. Murakuso, the three Finns, a Pole, and a British runner. When the leader, Murakuso, reached the halfway point, if he could keep this up, he would set a new record at 15 minutes and .9 seconds. The crowd, seemingly one by one, got to their feet, urging the young Japanese man on, hoping to see something spectacular. But then the Finns made their move. Pouring on the speed, the three stayed together, and almost before anyone could believe their eyes, Murakusa was in fourth place. Yet he stayed with the taller men. Then the Japanese man poured on his own speed to take the lead again. But the Finns stayed calm though the strain was apparent on their faces. Then the last lap came. With the Finn Salamin leading the way, the runners burst forward. Murakuro tried, but could not keep up with Salamin. Yet the other Finn, Osakla, then passed Salamin. Suddenly the last part of the lap was just between these two. Yet Salamin took the lead just in time right before the tape and finished a half a pace ahead. Behind them was the final Finn, Isoholo. The Finns took the gold, silver, and bronze.
but it had been a hell of a race. The crowd cheered all of the runners. After the 10,000-meter race, Hitler departed. The next competition was the high jump, in which the black Americans were expected to excel. The first round had 50 jumpers. All of those who cleared the 1.85-meter mark was sent to the finals. Cornelius Johnson and David Alperton, both of the U.S., were expected to do well. Johnson, and some saw this as pushing his luck, did not even bother to remove his tracksuit during the various qualifying jumps, yet he made it to the finals. As expected, the black Americans did the best. Johnson took the gold, Alperton the silver. The bronze was captured by another American, the white athlete Delos Thurber. The contests ended for the first day. The winners were given their medals besides the track under Hitler's box. Along with the medals, they were given olive garlands. Those that won the gold saw their country's flags raised while that country's national anthem was played. The presenters were given the medals to give to the athletes by young German maidens dressed in white of the Honor Youth Service. They had trained for this for two years and again had been selected for their grace, their beauty, and their Aryan features. Don't forget to send an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com and put a gold handle in the subject line. To enter for Harry's driveway. (laughs) No, giveaway. (laughs) Giveaway. Okay. Good luck. Good luck.